Hey everybody, Mitch Michaels here. Time for another edition of the Money Mitch Effect. Sports podcast covering the entire sports landscape, or at least the part of it that I deem fit. And today, that is the NHL Stanley Cup Finals. Going to start the show off with Dan Mount of the Hockey Writers. We talked about Nashville's recovery in that series. As there's now two games all heading back to Pittsburgh for Game 5. Pecorine's dominance on the Predators. Got back into it in front of a raucous crowd in Smashville, Tennessee. And then Brian Nelson, the man who designed the logo, going to be talking to us from Paris. We recorded a podcast interview last night. A lot of tennis storylines to talk about and a lot to catch everybody up to speed on. It's the Money Mitch Effect. Hope you're having a good week. It's only going to get better. Here's the show. All right, now it's time to talk about the Epic Stanley Cup Finals here on the Money Mitch Effect. And with that, bringing back out of the show, recurring guest, friend of the program, writer for the Hockey Writers, Dan Mount. Dan, thanks for joining the program yet again. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. I really appreciate it. The last time we discussed hockey on this show, uh, the last time I specifically discussed hockey on this show, the Penguins were up 2-0. Uh, they were you know, looking pretty good on the heels of Game 2. It was uh, a must-win Game 3, a must-win part in the series for Nashville. But, Dan, the first thing I want to bring up is when that series, when this series shifted to Nashville, just the turnout, the excitement. We had talked about how Nashville has really become a hockey town. But even I was a little taken aback by that scene outside of Game 3 and then continuing Game 4. The people in the streets, the people just embracing Nashville making it a hockey town yet again. Dan, what was that like in your perspective to see the scene, especially for Game 3, Broadway Street just covered it with Predators gear for the city of Nashville? It's really awesome to see a new market embrace hockey. Nashville's always liked the Predators. And remember, keep in mind that this team was almost out the door to Hamilton, but uh, the local community uh, really uh, rallied around it. They got local ownership, and they really started making an impression in the community building ice rinks, getting a real grassroots movement. And what you've seen the last two games has been uh, fruit coming to bear. It's really cool to hear those crowd chants. Even the, uh, I watched the CDC feed of them, and you can hear Jim Houston and Greg Gilbert and all them were chuckling at some of the uh, college hockey-like chants. If you've ever seen a college hockey yeah. game, they, they will do all these it's-all-your-fault chants, and it's like, you shoot, you scores, you stink, stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's stuff I've seen. I've covered college. I've covered college hockey for years, so it's nothing new. But it's really cool to see it at NHL level. And frankly, uh, I'd like to see more cities uh, have that sort of attitude and everything when it comes to crowd sharing. It's, it's kind of like a, I don't know if you ever watched European soccer at all, but uh, they're singing throughout the whole game. They're chanting. They're uh, having fun. And that's what it's all about: going to sporting events, having fun. Yeah, you know, and the chants are. are... I'd say good-natured in the sense that they're not over-the-top mean, but it would be pretty mm-hmm. tough to be Matt Murray at this time, you know, having to hear you suck and it's all your fault throughout the game. But I, but I'm with you. I, it's almost like Nashville, Dan, I don't know if it's safe to say, has become the South's hockey team. Is that fair? Well, I think Tampa still has something to say about okay. it. Uh, right. You know, they've been consistently good. Uh, Dallas, when they're on, that's a fun place to watch a game. But, uh, Nashville's coming up on the rail looking for looking to have that title. And uh, I tell you what, it, it's a, a perfect example of what you need to do if you want to uh, make a successful go in the artificial market. Look what they do in Tampa. Look what they do in Dallas. Look what they do in Nashville. The hockey arena is right in the middle of downtown, and you can just go right to it if you feel like it in the middle of the game. But, of course, the tickets might be a little harder to come by nowadays. There's the Predators uh, – being so successful everything. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, but Nashville, Dan wins game three, five to one. But even going into game four, you knew that this was still, I'd say, in that must-win range because you didn't want to go back to the Predators did not want to go back to Pittsburgh with them having a chance to close it out and win the Stanley Cup. And last night's game had a little bit of everything. Right from the jump, I, I think it's safe to say that this was the most evenly paced play I've seen in a long time. Uh, You'd seen long stretches of this series where one team would just dominate the action, Dan. For the first half of this game, especially, I thought this was right there, back and forth action. It was the most even game because 
the first uh, first game, they actually had stretches, but they had that one bad first period. You just did the same thing about game two. They had that where Rene and the defense just collapsed at the beginning of the third period, and uh, Nationals came out firing all that home environment in game three. But you were right. It was back and forth. Rene was uh, making saves. Freddie Gaudreau, talk about him. I mean, undrafted got the first three career goals in the playoffs, and then you've got uh, Sidney Cross with that sweet move beating Rene. He almost missed that goal, but he got it in. And, uh, you know, it was a fun game, and it wasn't decided until the third period. I know the score was a little different. It makes it well with a 4-1 game. Well, it was, the game was not decided until, like, the later stretches of the third period. So I thought Nashville, Dan, got back to doing uh, in these last two games what they've done, what brought them to the dance. The the first goal that opened up the scoring, Yarncroc's goal, uh, was just hard, good old-fashioned, a keep in, a shot on net. They crashed the net and scored. I was really actually happy, too, that they didn't overrule that and call goaltender interference. While I didn't think it was, I have no idea what the heck goaltender interference is anymore, so I'm glad that goal counted. I don't think anyone knows right at this point, uh, I mean, I had people I was following Twitter say, oh, Pittsburgh's going to call them their favorite league office, which I don't which I ever think would happen, you know. Yeah. But, it, yeah, you really can't tell nowadays. I mean, Craig Smith, I looked like Olimata pushed Smith into Matt Murray, but it was just, you don't know nowadays. There's no clear, defined rule, and that needs to be addressed in the offseason. But seeing Smith, seeing all the uh, defense, what they do really well is Nashville is they really do a good job of keeping pucks in. When they are allowed to have possession, they have that both four defense, and they do a great job of keeping the keeping the puck in and really cycling the puck, getting possession, and wearing down the defense. Because Pittsburgh, for long stretches, when Nashville had possession, they wear that team down. And that's one thing Nashville does, does very well, is they just keep rotating bodies. And uh, this is a team without, without two of its good centers and everything. And this team still finds ways to find ways to win and score goals. Yeah, and uh, I, I do want to get to Pekka Rene in, uh, in just a second, but the Crosby goal a minute and six seconds after that took place uh, was another was a breakdown, and there were quite a few of these in this game, but I, I just find it so imperative to know who you're on the ice with. Uh, a breakdown, a breakaway is never a good thing to be giving up, but yeah, when 87 got the puck there, Dan, I, I just assumed it was going to be a goal. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, uh, you don't give uh, Sidney Crosby that type of real estate. He knows how to finish, and uh, he got him to commit, and he got him, to, and got him down, and he got him to score that goal and everything. That's what you do if you're, uh, if you're sitting the kid, but uh, I tell you, the defensive breakdowns are probably going to decide the series and everything. I know uh, both defensive groups are fairly good, but Pittsburgh uh, got to take advantage of those changes because you don't get many breakdowns with that Predators defense. You don't, uh, and I thought it was a, a huge bounce back for Pittsburgh. I, I just think it's a situation where Crosby, uh, especially, I know they lost last night 4-1, to one, but Dan, he was pretty amazing out there, and it, I think it's easy even for the casual fan to understand now why teams, not just Nashville, why Ottawa, uh, down the line to Washington, why they were getting in Crosby's face in the playoffs, because you have to do that. If you're not in his re- wheelhouse, in his real estate, He's a wizard with the puck, uh, setting up his teammates and, and getting scoring chances. So I think it's pretty easy to see now why teams are uh, getting up in his grill. Then just make sure you have good breath when you do it, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. You got to be careful. I mean, uh, but no, I mean, in all seriousness, that's what you want. I think if you're a PK Subban, if you're a player on the other team, you want to get that reaction out of Crosby because it's all about throwing him off of his game. Because when he's on his game, he's pretty tough to uh, contain. And give any playmaker uh, any amount of real estate. Look at guys like Gretzky. He's got room to operate. And guys that can handle the puck, guys that can pass it around, got room to operate. What do you also say about Subban, though? I mean, a lot of people are like, don't like his showy aspect, but the guy can actually play defense. I mean, yeah. look at what he's done to their uh, to top players like Vladimir Tarasenko. Look what he did to uh, Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves in the first round. Look what he did in the to get and company in the in the uh, Western Final. I mean, this guy. Uh, has been put trusted by Peter Laviolette to uh, take care of the top scorer, and uh, he, I think he's done a fairly fairly good job this playoffs. Yeah, he's blocking shots. He's not just the offensive threat. We saw him get a little banged up blocking that shot off of his knee uh, last game, but no, he, he's doing a great job. He's fitting in nicely uh, on that blue line. As I continue chatting with Dan Mount here on the Money Mitch Effect, recapping Game Four of the Stanley Cup Final Series, now tied two games all. 
Dan, let's talk about the star of the show, hands down, and that was Nashville goaltender Pekka Rene. He had been up against it. He had been hearing it from critics, and a lot of it was deserved. He did not play well in Pittsburgh in games one and two. In the start of game three, he got the sense after you know a goal that he probably should have controlled the rebound early in that game that he might still be in danger. You know, How long would the leash be? Will Laviolette actually pull him? But since that moment of that first goal in Game 3, he's been nothing sort of short of sensational. And last night's game, Dan, was one for the ages. Some of the saves he made to keep his team in it, breakaway after breakaway, and some unbelievable chances that Pittsburgh got. Pekka slammed the door. It has to be uplifting for any team to have this happen. But when Pekka Rene plays like that, I just don't know, Dan, if there's any other goalie in the league that can match that level of intensity. He's up there with guys like lots of guys like Lungfist and company, but uh, you know, it just as the Predators go, so does Pecorini, or should I say, as the Pecorini goes, so do the Predators. But uh, there was strong talk that UC Saros was going to probably get the start in Game Three, and that'd be a lot of pressure to put on a rookie goalie, a guy who I think is going to be pretty good in his career, but you, you don't you don't give him that type of opportunity. I mean, you tr- I think Laviolette trusts Pekka, and uh, I think he was trusted by his rewarded by that trust and that's one thing Laviolette has done in this postseason it seems to dial the right guys in and it seems to work I mean he's on his four lines his goalie choices you know I think if Rene keeps keeps playing the way he's playing I mean look out I mean uh, they could possibly steal game five in Pittsburgh they could I thought it was a throwback because I thought for a couple years you could have made a, a legitimate argument around that 2010 to 2012 range Dan that he was the best goalie uh, in the league, and I thought he was completely on on all of his angles. I mean, Crosby scores on a breakaway. Pittsburgh had a couple other breakaways and dangerous chances uh, that he just slammed the door on. And the save that I think a lot of people are going to remember are the the sequence of saves when he stoned Crosby on on his second breakaway attempt in the game twice, and then lunged across the crease without his stick and making a save with his basically paddle hand. Uh, unbelievable, and, and I think that just got the team going you saw it Nashville scored he keeps them at two to one and then they go on to win four to one so I think that was the sequence people are going to remember for time to come yeah that that would have changed the whole dynamic of that game if Pittsburgh would have scored on that sequence because it becomes a lot tighter and Pittsburgh's got a lot more experience in, in games like this and everything you know pass off arena you know he, he's just fantastic fantastic at what he does and uh like you said he didn't have those teams back then in 2010 to 2012 or uh they didn't give him the offensive support. I mean, there were a lot of times that players would lose game 2-1, Arena would make like 45 saves, but you eventually got to let some in if you let that many shots through. It, it's just a testament to see how well he's been the last few years, and it's nice to see he's finally getting noticed in that. Yeah, he is. He is. I think, especially on the national stage, where also everybody is seeing how dominant of a player he is. And the goal I alluded to was Freddie Goudreau, his third goal that was uh, his third goal of his career. Also, just in the Stanley Cup playoffs, Stanley Cup final, only the second player ever to do that. But, Dan, I do want to talk about that because it was on a, a crazy sequence of events. It was a wraparound that was not called a goal on the ice. And I'm going to be honest, I've been a fan of hockey basically my whole life. I've been covering it for quite a few years now. I'd never seen this before where they just stopped the game in the middle of action. They blew the horn from the control room. Was that stunning for you? Did you know that this was a possibility and that ultimately this meant it was a goal? No, I, I always was under the assumption that they would wait for the stoppage and then like somebody logged a letter, the control in Toronto would be like, yeah. hey, uh, you might want to check this out. But I think that's been the going standard at this rate because what would have happened to say they would have done it the old way where they let they let play go and what if Pittsburgh would have scored? Do you wipe that goal out too? Yeah. It, would, it would have caused this whole thing of confusion. I, I actually like this now where they uh, – where they do that, you know, I actually like the fact that they're uh, they're stopping play, and if it's not a goal, they'll just reset from where they were. So I think that's a, it's a good process to set to stop it and then to take a look at it. Right, you know, I think a couple of things. I agree. If it's definitely a goal, I think you can just you can make that move and say, all right, let's just we we pretty much know this is a goal. We've had a couple looks at it while the action's going on. I think that makes sense. If it's not a goal, or if you're not sure. That could be a little dicier, but but I understand what you're saying. The, the only big concern I have is if that horn goes off and let's say a player's skating through the middle and pulls up, I just don't want to see anyone getting, you know, laid out, so to speak. 
you know, it could, it could, that, that, is, that, is, that is, that's <laughs> a very good point, you know, yeah. so if West Chevy like cross, he's like, he's floating through the middle, he hears the horn, all of a sudden, you know, somebody lines him up and exactly. whack him, and uh, give him a good one, you know, I mean, that, that is a, uh, a precedent you want to set, but I think uh, the, uh, with the uh, officials have the, uh, have the uh, capacity to know, okay, what's going on, and uh, I think they're smart enough to take care of that and make sure nothing like that happens. No, it, it was uh, just something I was considering because you know you don't you want to be you know smart about it. You don't want to uh, blow the whistle when it can be very very tough to do so. But be that as it may, Freddie Gaudreau another big goal for him. The Predators were up two to one, Dan, but Pittsburgh was still getting tons of chances. And the underrated play in this game was goal number three, the Arvidsson goal. A guy that had been quiet, who was a top player who they needed, who had been quiet for a while. But he gets a goal, and he gets it with some great assists from his teammates, Mike Fisher and James Neal. Neal to clear the puck out, Fisher to chip it to him in space. But I look at this goal, and I look at the teamwork that came with it, and the guys that stepped up. I had a sense that for all the Gaudreau and Yarnock-type goals, Dan, Nashville doesn't win this game unless their stars really showed up, and I thought this was evidence that they were here to play. And let's also talk about the, I know the last one was an empty enter, but Philip Forsberg makes the score sheet. What is that going to do to his confidence? I know you take him anywhere you can get him. It's like a foul shooter or a, or a guy in a basketball game who keeps missing his first like ten shots, and uh, they tell him to go inside and try to get a get a bunny, and uh, yeah. it helps him out. And I think what's that going to do for like also Forsberg's confidence? Him getting on there and getting on the, getting his name on the list of goal scorers that should could possibly be a helpful for the Predators in Game Five because uh, you start getting your top guys firing, you know it might be a little bit tougher sledding for Pittsburgh. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Forsberg's uh, issue in that game, Dan, was he wasn't shooting the puck enough. Uh, I thought he had tons of opportunities where he got a little too cute with it. Um, but if he's shooting... Yeah, that first sequence, the sequence before, uh, before uh, the Nashville goal, the first goal, he had an opportunity oh. right in front, but he uh, laid up and passed it up to somebody else. And that, and that's what Eddie Olchek says, like, you He's just got to shoot that, you know. He's, he's in front. If Murray makes a save, you tip your hat to him and say, hey, good job on that. Well, it, it was good to see him getting involved in this series now tied two games to two as I continue chatting with Dan Mount on the Money Mitch Effect about the Stanley Cup Finals. Dan, let's look at the other side of this. Pittsburgh is going back home. You know, they still have home ice. It's two to two, but they kind of deviated away from what they had done. And I, and I look at it from one perspective. Crosby's playing well, Gensel obviously having a postseason for the ages. But those other lines aren't really stepping up. I'm looking at Evgeny Malkin. I'm looking at Phil Kessel. What do those players need to do to get back to playing good Pittsburgh Penguin hockey and really raise their level of play? Yeah, I mean, you can't just win with two or three guys. And this is why Nashville found its way back into the series. They're getting contributions from first-line guys, fourth-line guys, guys that were in Milwaukee a couple of months ago. You need everyone to score pretty much if you're going to win a Stanley Cup. And, uh, yeah, Crossy and Gensel have been playing fantastic, but uh, Gino Malkin's got to show up. Uh, Brian Rust has got to show up. Uh, guys like Ole Mata have got to chip in some goals and everything, and they got to give Matt Murray some help. I mean, Nashville scored nine goals in the last two games. Granted, there was a couple of empty netters and everything, but still, uh, that's not a good-looking statistic when you're going back and uh, – the Predators have got the momentum going in Game 5 and everything. And I know Pittsburgh shot home ice, and that will certainly help, but uh, they need to get some of these guys' minds right and everything and get, get some of their uh, sticks, sticks of firing. Yeah, Malkin especially. You know, I think he, when he's on, the Penguins are really tough to beat. I think the power play looked better. They're still not scoring on it, but if Pittsburgh's power play wakes up, that could be a game-changer in this series. And I, I'll, I'll do you one as well, Dan. I don't think Murray's necessarily played that bad. I know they've given up a lot of goals, but he needs some help. I mean, this is they're missing Chris Letang. They're missing some help from their defensemen. It's it's murder's row in front of Murray as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and there have been some breakdowns, and there's been some rebounds, and the defensemen are not cleaning up. I mean, Matt Murray did win the Stanley Cup last year in his rookie campaign. There's not many guys that can hang their hat on that, but... Uh, I know there's the, the scuttlebutt, hey, let's bring Marc-Andre Fleury in, but uh, he had those disastrous two games against the Senators, uh, remember. And I think Matt Murray is the better option at this point, and you wonder, if they lose game five, uh, does Marc-Andre Fleury make his way into the lineup? But uh, wow. you can't pin it all on him, you know. 
That would be a very tough situation to walk in, even for a guy like Flurry Dan, for <laughs> coming into game five or game six, down three games to two. I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. Um, but Especially that madhouse in Nashville. Could you imagine yeah. Marc-Andre Fleur being called upon to save the team's season, possibly his last game with the club, before something happens, he gets traded or picked in the expansion draft. Well, <laughs> uh, that, that, that's a heck of a storyline. Well, the good thing for Predators fans is those Murray chants can transition right into Flurry pretty easily. So. They, don't have, they, they, rhyme. <laughs> they <laughs> don't have to worry about that. Um, all right, Dan, I do want to talk to you about, you know, going forward, the Predators have to win a game in Pittsburgh to win the Stanley Cup. So I know that they Absolutely. got a game six in Nashville, and that's a good situation. But what do they have to do? What do they have to change if they do have to change anything to get their mindset and their game ready to win a game in Pittsburgh, which is what it's going to take? They've got to erase mistakes. I mean, that first period after the Subban goal was wiped away, you could just see them get a little deflated. And that, that's very rare for Peter Laviolette team is that they just got deflated. And then Pittsburgh just dinged three in, and there was that unfortunate own goal by one of the Predators' defensemen that, went, that slipped by Rene. And then the game, like I said, game two, the third period, you know, they've got to eliminate mistakes and they can't let things snowball. Yeah, Pittsburgh's going to get their goals and everything in game, game five. But the thing is, they got to limit the mistakes. They got to make Pittsburgh earn those goals. They got to make the guys that are not Sidney Crosby or Jake Gensel. <laughs> you know, they got to make somebody uh, somebody else beat them. You know. Yeah, I- I'm with you there. They just got to eliminate those short stretches of inactivity, uh, of poor play. They're with Pittsburgh, outplaying them for a lot of those two games. But if you have breakdowns against this team, if you have breakdowns against the Crosby line, especially, they will make you pay. Uh, but but I were, and I was excited for this series before it started, uh, just stylistically how you'd have the star firepower up front of Pittsburgh, the depth and the teamwork on the blue line, especially by Nashville, and it was on display last night where the Predators Dan have twelve players get points, but no one had more than one. You know I thought that was just a very telling stat for what the Predators can be when they're clicking on all cylinders. Yeah, I saw a statistic, I think, during the Duck series that when uh, some, I'm trying to think of an Auburg score, they've had like 15 or 16 different guys contribute goals in their run to the Stanley Cup final. I mean, uh, that's an impressive statistic as well. Yeah, it is. You know, And, and you look at Nashville now, 9-1 and one at home in the postseason. And also, this being the first series, Dan, where they had to face adversity, where they didn't get that early lead in the series. They didn't steal the games on the road. I thought it's very telling for how they were able to bounce back at home. But you know, we're gearing up for, for a pivotal Game 5, one that I think should be, should be very exciting. And for the NHL, I think we'll close on this. They're getting about as good of a final, as entertaining of a final as they can imagine, both on the ice and off of it. I think they're pretty happy with how things turned out. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, and we'll talk about the other, final, the other sport, the NBA and everything. And Golden State's dominance is fantastic. Absolutely yeah. wonderful to watch, but then you look at the pair and like, well, most of the series have been sweeps, or pretty much it's been preordained with Cleveland and Golden State. But the NHL, there's been parody, there's some storylines. You got Breastgate, as I like to call dub that. Thank you very much, and I'll take the royalties on that. <laughs> you got yeah. Breastgate, you've got uh, the emergence of a new hockey market in Nashville, you've got fan excitement, you've got star power out of Pittsburgh because. There were a lot of people worried, I bet you, in the league office, like, what if Ottawa beats Pittsburgh, you know? What if Ottawa's playing Nashville in the final, you know? But uh, this final has pretty much had everything. It's had gold, it's had some great defense, it's got two teams, it's got some star power. I mean, it's everything you've wanted. And uh, hopefully the American media will uh, hop on a little bit more and maybe pay a little bit more attention to it, especially if the NBA Finals turns into a, into a bloodbath, it turns into a sweep and everything, and the only thing left is hockey. Well, yeah, and it's good you have uh, stars like Carrie Underwood and Charles Barkley talking about how good hockey is. Barkley working yeah, for Barkley getting in trouble and everything with, with Ernie. With the, remember at the end of the Ottawa series, he's like, yeah, I'm going to go watch Game 7. I'll see you guys later. <laughs> well, I, I feel like there may have been some monetary uh, dealings on that game. <laughs> I think that might have... Uh, played a factor into it but it's good to see people from the outside you know Barkley crashing the Wayne Gretzky Paul Coffey press conference uh it's good to see that there's that excitement on the outside I I just think uh I think the final is everything you could really expect from it it's exciting it's what we want to see in hockey and um we don't know what's going to happen I think that's the best part you mentioned how the other series in the NBA seems preordained in hockey you just don't know 
So I think that's uh, a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we like the, that's why we like the sport because uh, but we said there's there was like how many teams that could have won Stanley Cup and everything. So those things would have break the one way. The Rangers would probably in the finals. Things would have broken one way. Ottawa would be in there. You know, I mean it's. It's a wonderful thing to see multiple teams in there. I think it gets fan interest up in different markets because you'll see, hey, we've got a shot to actually win this instead of like, well, only your four teams can win the, win the other title, you know? Yeah, and uh, I think we're also looking for if Nashville wins their first Stanley Cup, the scene, the, the chaos that we're going to see in that celebration is going to be off the charts. And keep in mind, there's stuff going on I think, with the CMAs and everything during the week. <laughs> and yeah. the traffic's already going to be a nightmare. Imagine if there's a Stanley Cup clinching party in Nashville with already a big country music fest going on that weekend. <laughs> I can only imagine the uh, traffic and uh, logistical headaches that'll happen. Oh, should be. <laughs> yeah, geez. Should be exciting, but we're all looking forward to it. Dan Mount, thanks for joining the show. This was fun. And uh, I hope for your sake you get some sleep. I know you're, <laughs> I know you're up against it with the certain circumstances so thanks again for coming on the show that, that's thanks thanks for having me Mitch. i appreciate it very much big thanks to dan mount for coming on today's show you can catch all of his stuff at the hockey writers website and follow me twitter at dan mount sports that's at dan mount sports thanks again to him and uh, hopefully we can see Nashville keep it going. But Pittsburgh's tough. You know, they're going to be there until the end. All right, now it's time to talk tennis with Brian Nelson. He's the guy that designed the logo. He's a feature editor at Tennis Channel. And he is in Paris right now. You know, he recorded this in the wee hours of, uh, of the night, early morning, as we discussed tennis. This was before, as I, you know, as I voice this over right now, Novak Djokovic got destroyed by Dominic Team. We didn't know that ahead of time. Uh, but here's our tennis talk now on the men's draw and the women's draw. Who's looking good? Rafael Nadal. Maybe it's Simona Halep's here. A lot to discuss there. Here's Brian Nelson. Nelly now on tennis and the French Open. I'm Come on, you mentioned. Smooth, ain't nothing gonna phase me. Yeah, my emotions are harmony. Yeah, locked in rocket straight to the top. No intention to stop it. Move the time with the melody. Yeah, we'll dance to infinity. All right, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome into the show recurring guest on the Money Mitch Effect, and all the way over from Paris, France, at this very moment, Brian Nelson. Brian, thanks for joining the show. No problem, Mitch. I should, uh, I gotta ask you this though, what time is it right now as we record this in Paris? It is currently Wednesday, and it's 2.53 a.m. <laughs> now, this I just want to point out for everyone listening, I'm not, uh, this isn't cruel and unusual punishment. This was your suggestion. You wanted to, you know, chop it up after, and I appreciate that after your work shift, but it's been an interesting run. I know you usually work the, uh, the evening shifts for these majors, but today, a lot of rain, not as many tennis matches as we would have liked. But how's the tournament been from your end, uh, just, you know, grinding in and out for a major? You know, it's it's felt a little strange. I think that the, the absence of certainly uh, Roger on the men's side and even probably more so Serena on the women's side, it's just felt uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, it just seemed a little strange. In terms of the overall feel of the tournament, it's, it's been... As a contrast to last year, the weather has actually been quite nice up until today. Really nice sunny days, and so everyone here in Paris seems to be very happy. Spirits are high, which is nice. Translates usually to some good tennis matches. Yeah, no, I would uh, I would agree with that. This being the the exception, today's rain uh, that rained yeah. out the men's quarterfinal matches that we're going to get going. Uh, last year it was a disaster with how much rain that they had, but. Uh, you know, you mentioned Federer and Serena being out. We touched on it in the preview uh, leading up to this tournament, how there's going to be an opening for players on each tour. And on the men's side, though, I don't know if that opening still exists because we are seeing an absolute vintage, pinnacle-esque version of Rafael Nadal on our screens, on our television screens from across uh, the, the ocean, Nelly. It looks like he is playing at an all-time high level, which is scary to think uh, that he is a nine-time champ, and possibly playing his best clay court tennis ever. 
Yeah, it's it's great to see actually, and he's um, he's playing with the kind of confidence that we're used to seeing him play with. He seemed to have m- missed some of that, and it's great to see him back on the court and playing at the level he's playing at. I mean, you know, he hasn't been. I wouldn't say he hasn't has been tested thus far in the draw, although he's he has played a few pretty good clay court players that he handled excellent i mean handled perfectly i mean this last round versus roberto batista who's a very very serviceable clay court player he you know he handled him easily mm-hmm. uh so i think going into the quarterfinals i got you got to think rafa is the favorite yeah, I mean, I think that's clear. And, and you mentioned handling Batista Goot. I think the draw has been favorable for him. He'd be the first to admit it. But what we've seen differently this year, as opposed to the last couple of years when he struggled, Nelly, is that he's just dominating. He's getting off the court. He's not going four or five sets with players that aren't up to his level. He's finishing them fast. I mean, I was watching the Ceballos match, and the guy had eight points, one against Nadal through eight games. I mean, it just—it's—it's it's pure domination. He's, I think, now 99 and two in best of five clay court matches, which is just insane. I mean, we live in a stats-driven world, but that's—that's that's out of control. Uh, I will say this though: there's something about him against other clay court type players. He's got Karina Busta in the next round, who just beat Milos Raonic in a five-set epic match. What do you think it is? Is it a mental thing that guys just can't touch Nadal, who is this mythical figure? You know, especially as countrymen, they just never seem to be able to beat him. I think there's definitely something to that. I mean, you know, he is Rafael Nadal, and he is playing on Philippe Chatrier, where he's he's only been he's only lost twice, so <laughs> it's not an easy task. And I think that you know, when you walk on the court against a guy like that that has that level of dominance, you you almost walk onto that court down a set. You know, you have to, you have to play. Your your level has to be at such a height that that most of these guys, it's beyond them. You know, and it's mm-hmm. it's not that they're not quality players, and that they can maybe get a set off of him, or maybe in other circumstances in other tournaments, maybe beat him. But here in Paris, it's it's like he's in he's a different guy, and and certainly in 2017, he's he looks like. Rafael Nadal of of you know earlier years when when he had that dominance and he put together those wins and he he won nine titles here so yeah I mean it's gonna snowball so you have to play right from the get go if you if you don't come ready to play against Nadal you'll be down a set and a break before you realize you've taken the court and you know with him he's gonna fight for everything this court means the most to him this major is where he's had his most success and it is very refreshing to see him back still playing at an unbelievably high level, which, you know, we mentioned that the draw was favorable to him. It really doesn't pick up until that semifinal. We assume that he'll be able to beat Karina Busta. But the other side, the quarter to get to Nadal, I think it's hands down the hardest quarter of the draw it was on paper before the dominoes fell. But Nelly, tomorrow, after it got rained out today, it's going to be Novak Djokovic versus Dominic Team, And... I don't know about you, but I think these are two ships that might be moving in different directions in the night, so to speak. You got one guy that's on top of the world, that was on top of the world, Novak Djokovic. It's kind of struggling, having a little bit of an identity crisis, trying to regain that top form. And then Dominic Thiem, who might be the heir apparent to Nadal on clay court. So I don't know how you see this one going, but I'm very fascinated to see what happens in this quarterfinal matchup. Yeah, I I think it's going to be... It's going to be an interesting match. I think it could be, uh, you know, it could be an all-timer. But you know, we we don't have to look too far to their last matchup where they met in the semifinals in Rome, and and it was quite, kind of an embarrassing match for him. Yeah. Who who lost one in love? But I think, I honestly think that in some ways that that might be just what he needs to sort of put him into that you know, to see himself as being equal to these guys. You'd mentioned how players come out of the court with Nadal and they they almost have that intimidation. And I, I feel like these young kids, these young guys coming up, they have that to a certain extent with all of these guys. 
you know, he he probably went into that semifinal in Rome and just, you know, succumbed to that. And I think maybe for him, maybe it was an opportunity to learn a little bit and come out in this in this quarterfinal and, and play the, the level of tennis he he can play. And and I certainly think that if he plays at his his level he can he can go he can play with Novak. And I think, you know, Djokovic has, has shown he's vulnerable. Um, I think though the addition of Andre Agassi has his he he looks a little different out there right, right now after join after having Agassi join him, but I still think uh, yeah I think that's I wouldn't I would still say Djokovic you gotta give him I think he's you know the favorite in this matchup but I think team's gonna you know push him around a little bit and I know team. It wasn't on the best of five setting, but he's beaten it all before on clay. So, and and he did you know this year earlier. So maybe he he has gotten through that mental mental side of, of facing these top guys. I do want to ask you qu- quickly on Novak, Brian. Do you think that you could see something that Agassi's gotten through to him? Is there something noticeable about how Djokovic has played this tournament that looks like a result of working with Andre Agassi? I think in general he he appears a little bit more at ease, and you know for the last for the last year or so he's just he's just looked a little intense on court. He's looked a little uncomfortable in in some ways that we're not used to seeing. And I just seeing him his his body language on court and particularly during practices and where I've seen him around on the grounds. He just seems he seems more comfortable and and maybe you know having Agassi on his team has, has allowed him to sort of take a little bit of pressure off of himself in some ways and yeah I think he just he looks a little more comfortable yeah you know I, I think too with that because uh, we've seen outbursts a little bit this tournament and, and we've seen times where he's looked a little shaky going five sets to Schwartzman comes to mind but last round against Vinolinas, he, he wins in straight sets. He runs away with it down the stretch. And I just think that when he's got his mind frame right, we know the game's still there. You know, he's over 30. It's the it's that mythical number in, in tennis. But I don't see slipping with his game. I think I'm agreeing with you. I think it's all the other stuff. It, it's just not being focused. It's just questionable decision-making. And it seems like if he's more at ease, Agassi can get through to him because ultimately – He's probably still the best bet to beat Nadal in this tournament. Well, I, I definitely agree with you on the first point: is that the, his game is there, and I do think Agassi is, uh, you know, can help him get back to a, a spot where the game is the focus. But I disagree with you on okay. on that that Djokovic is the only remaining player in the draw because I Oof. I actually think that the man. <laughs> person in the draw that okay. has the best chance <laughs> yep. is Stamar Here it is. All right. Well, first of all, yeah, I, did, I, did, I didn't say secondly, the only player. Secondly, <laughs> well, okay. And then I actually think that the two of those, one of the, in that quarterfinal between Wawrinka and Chilich, those two guys are the only people remaining in the men's draw that can hit through Nadal, and which is the only way you're going to beat him on clay yeah. in Paris. No, you're you're absolutely right with that. I just think Djokovic has done that before. He he's one of the two guys that have beaten him. I think he can if he can dial it back. And I, you know what, team, I think can do it. I, I don't know that he will, but he'll, he'll even get there. You know, Paul Anacone said on Tennis Channel uh, a couple of days ago. I think it was a couple of days ago that he thinks team's the hardest hitter on tour. And it sounds crazy to think that, but he might be. I mean, he's in that running. He's up there with a stand. You know, so. I think there's uh, look obviously Nadal's the favorite, but and there are options out there, but it's all about peaking at the right time and you know just showing up, playing your best match when it matters, you know, and that's where team there is that unknown. Can he do it? We haven't seen it. And you know, Stan's won majors. You obviously know Novak's won. So yeah, no, I, I think there's there's still some drama left in this tournament. I, I wouldn't sleep on Stan. No, I, I know we're gonna get there. I know, I know you would not sleep on Stan. He's He's heating up. <laughs> well, he—I mean—he hasn't—he hasn't dropped a set, you know, and he's on an eight-match winning streak. And I mean, he looked—he looked 
unbeatable against against Monfi. I know Monfi was a little hobbled in that match, but there were a few exchanges in that that were, I mean, you know, it was vintage Warinka, you know, which we haven't we haven't unfortunately seen for a little bit. He's a very streaky player, so that's that's probably, in my mind, what he is most vulnerable to is his own streakiness. Yeah, and, yeah. No, I I think with Stan, you always wonder about early streakiness, meaning like he's vulnerable early, and if he can get deeper into a major, he can heat up. He he's uh, and I know he's a personal favorite of yours, but. Would it be fair to say he's just like that car that just takes forever to start, but once it gets going, watch out? Yeah, that's a, that's <laughs> probably a fair assessment. Stan Stan needs, you know, he kind of does need to warm up, and sometimes he, you know, he's he's prone to playing to the level of his opponent, which sometimes puts him in in he plays beyond his. Sometimes when he plays a guy like Novak, which we've seen in the past, he's. He's playing in this this level that most of us don't see often with him, you know. But then he can also lose to a player that's ranked 60 places below him, you know, early in a tournament. So, but I think that you know he he needs a few of those wins under his belt on the way to like a semifinal with with Murray, which is what he's hoping to get to if if he gets through Chilich, but. Especially if, if you know, that we like I said, there has been a little bit of rain here in Paris today, but it's been otherwise very dry, which w- which will have the effect of speeding these courts up. We're speeding the court up at, at Chatrier, and, you know, that, that benefits a guy like Wawrinka because he hits flat and he hits hard, and, you know, it'll, it'll help him, his game. Right, and playing to the level of, his, of the competition is a good analogy because I know he... Didn't actually have a murderer's row players to get through here. Delgapolov, Fognini. Uh, and the Fognini match, I know he's another personal favorite of yours, was a very telling match for both of these players when you had Fognini serving for the first set twice and then getting bageled in the second set when he didn't win the first. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think he's playing to the levels competition, but he's also not going to be afraid of Nadal of Djokovic, whoever it is, in a big match because he's won them before and the pressure just doesn't get to him. Yeah, I think that's probably, you know, it's one of Stan's absolute strengths is that he doesn't seem to be bothered by the moment. Yeah, and, and he and peaks at the we, right time. And he peaks at the right time. He does. And, and you know, when you when you want to talk about winning Fine. When you want to talk about winning matches at, on the big stages, that's what you need to be able to do. You know, is be able to kind of put everything else behind you and and just play. And I think, yeah, interestingly, we have on the men's side, we have most of the top seeds at the spot where they're they're supposed to be in the quarters. So yeah. I think um, I think the men on the men's side, we've got a very very good. We've got all the best players at this point through. Yeah, pretty much. It's as, uh, it's as good as you could hope for as I uh, continue chatting with Brian Nelson, feature producer at and editor at Tennis Channel on the Money Mitch Effect. The last quarter I do want to talk about might actually, Nelly, end up being the best quarterfinal matchup, and that's Andy Murray and Kay Nishikori. For whatever reason, Nishikori just happens to frustrate Murray in a lot of tournaments and a lot of big matches. He took him out of the U.S. Open a year ago. Do you think Nishikori has another big match in him? Is Andy Murray on the flip side of that settling in, getting his groove where he struggled a lot this year? Well, yeah, Andy Murray, who's, you know, world number one, top seed, but he's only won one tournament this year and he's only beaten one top 10 player all year. So he's had a bit of a strange year and you know, it's weird. You see him out there, and it's it's almost as if you're waiting for him to, to get knocked out of tournaments early on because it, it feels like it's just it happens every tournament. And, you know, here he is into the, into the quarters. He's had – he's definitely had some shaky moments. and But I think Kei Nishikori, as you know, I, I've never really been sold on this guy. I feel like he's got the tools, but I just feel like, you know, when it – when push comes to shove, he just he can't really fight in those big moments. And I think Murray 
Murray can, and that's he has that instinct. And so I think sometimes when I know it's a cliche, but sometimes you know that they say it's like winning when you're not playing your best is what defines like a champion. And I think Murray has that ability, whereas I think Nishikori lacks that. But I but I do I do agree with you that Nishikori's game is some is a game that can can be very frustrating to somebody like Murray. But I think for Murray, what we've seen this year is that a lot of times it's the unknown that really gets him, and he's certainly played Nishikori many times. So um, I I think that that's it's a little bit more of a of a known playing Nishikori, but uh, Nishikori has played really well this tournament yeah i think i think the biggest takeaway watching this tactically is that murray is a guy that while the big four and you know you can throw stan in there the big five they're great at you know great tennis players but I, murray doesn't hit as many winners doesn't have that one stroke that you'd put up with the rest of the guys and i think nisha Corey, you combine that with his defense with his, with his ability to move he's one of the few guys nelly that murray just can't like wear down and just kind of seek and destroy I don't know what it is if it's more than just his movement, but I think Nishikori can hang with him. And when you get into a four or five set match, anything can happen. And I think that's what happened last year. It was a coin flip match, the U.S. Open. Nishikori just broke through at the end. Uh, I'm looking forward to another classic uh, in this one. But I do have to ask you before we switch to the women's draw, you, we mentioned a lot of the top seeds making it this far. But there was a couple guys, a couple of the uh, younger-ish guys, that didn't quite make that leap. He had Zverev losing after winning yeah. Rome, losing in the first round to Fernando Verdasco. Kyrgios went down early to, to uh, Kevin Anderson. He, he he had his natural racket smashed, tantrum at the end. And Grigor Dimitrov losing uh, another guy anointed highly. So these are three guys that we expected to you know make runs and, and make the next step still kind of stuck in neutral. You think that should have been expected, or uh, is this kind of rare to see? Well, in, in in the as regards Zverev, you know that's a very tough first round match. I mean, you're talking about a former top five player that's still very fit and and still <laughs> a dangerous player. I mean, he yep. took out Nadal at the at the Australian Open last year, and you know it's 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 not as if Verdasco is is a, a journeyman. You know, I I would say that 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 wasn't that surprising, and. It's never surprising to me when Kyrgios loses, only because he's, you know, he is his worst enemy on court. And, you know, Kevin Anderson had a good tournament. He's he's kind of coming back to to form a little bit. So, Dimitrov, it's a, it's it's a little bit of a strange one with that with him because it looked as if he was gonna this was gonna be his year to kind of turn that <laughs> corner. And, you know, he's so I I don't know. So yeah. I think we're in this in this in tennis. I think we're very we're very eager to find the next big thing, and when all those guys that we just talked about have all been sort of saddled with that, without any real indication that it's you know yeah. warranted. But yeah, Zverev might be the guy that just got a bad draw because he's he won a Masters event recently. He's starting to show signs that he could be the next big thing on a consistent basis. We'll see where it goes next. And just to kind of put a bow on this, Nelly, I, I, I think we know what happened to Dimitrov. He got cursed by our coworker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, yeah, uh, George Spinozian takes a photo with him at Indian Wells, anoints him the chosen one, and he has looked like a shell of himself since. I'm just I'm connecting <laughs> the dots. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you can't argue with that. The, the facts are there. They are, they are. Ah, man. All right, let's uh, let's look at the uh, the women's draw here on the French Open. Mitch Michaels, Brian Nelson here on the Money Mitch Effect as we'll look at the women's draw. There was no Serena Williams. It was, you know, a lot of experts said that this would be an unpredictable tournament, and they were right. Nelly, we are all over the place. The one semifinal is set, two more quarterfinal matchups to be played, but the first semifinal set, the matches that took place today, Tamea Baczynski beats Kiki Maldenovich, and Wozniacki loses to Jelena Ostapenko, a 19-year-old who will be, oddly enough, both these girls, Baczynski and Ostapenko, have birthdays when their match takes place in two days. But So you have a 30-seed versus an unseeded teenager. I don't think a lot of people had this one. 
Uh, no, probably not. You know, I, I think um, Ostapenko, you know, a lot of people, they don't know about Ostapenko. They, you know, she's, she's very new to the scene. But Ostapenko, for most people, is a, is a total unknown. But um, for the Loyal Tennis Channel viewers, <laughs> Ostapenko, if you, you would know that she made it to the final, I think, I believe she won the final in Charleston. Yeah, she she uh, no, she lost the final. She Castakina, yeah. Castakina won the final. However, she got to the final, and the the surface and at Charleston is very similar to the surface in Roland Garros. Mm. Um, different co- different color, but it's the same type of clay. So so she can play on this surface. I think it's it's something that uh, you know surprised some of these some of the players on her draw, but. Uh, you know, I think on the women's side, it's it's really like the draw is wide open with Serena's absence. The fact that a wild card wasn't given to Sharapova further kind of gave, although, you know, who knows how well she would have done. Yeah, and then Kerber loses within the first two hours of the tournament starting. Right. And then meanwhile, the, the two-seed, Pliskova, has quietly made her way into the quarterfinals. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, Pliskova, two-seed, played in the U.S. Open final, has been featured almost exclusively on outer courts out at Roland Garros. So you, you almost, people have almost forgotten about her as she made her way into the quarters. Bashinsky, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people, I think Miladinovic in some ways became sort of the de facto favorite as as a French woman and she looked she looked pretty good in some of her matches, particularly against Muguruza. Um but Bashinsky's a tough player and I think, you know, she's she's she has just as good a chance as anyone to win this one at this point, I I would think. Although I do think the winner will probably come from the other side. Well, that's a safe bet. I, I, well, I just want to say about Pashinsky. And Maldenovic had a tournament that's going to be remembered because she, while she didn't look great in a lot of the matches, she battled, she kept fighting, she was able to rally late. But you know, Pashinsky is that kind of knuckleball type player. A lot of slices, a lot of just weirdness in her game. And she frustrates players. And that's what she's done in beating Venus and now Maldenovic to get Ostapenko, who is, as you said, a teenager on the rise. The uh, the other side of the bracket, though, I'm glad you brought this up because Pliskova is not a clay court player per se. She is under underappreciated for being a two seed, being on the outer courts. But is her all around game good enough in this weakened field? It might be. Caroline Garcia is going to be a tough matchup. And as good as Spitalina has looked, uh, Elaine Spitalina, the five seed in this tournament, and as dangerous as a matchup as that is, I keep coming back to this, Nelly. This is for me the last stop for Simona Halep. If she can't win this major here, I don't know that it ever happens for her. She's got, I think, more talent than any left, more game, and a golden opportunity, and I think this is it. I absolutely agree with you, but I also think that that <laughs> might be the yeah. problem. You know, she's, it's, she's not, she doesn't deal real well with, with pressure, but luckily she's been playing outstanding tennis, so hopefully she can just kind of put everything else behind her and just get out there and play her game which at this point uh i don't see anybody left that that i you know i I do think pliskova could could beat her and i think pliskova again speaking to the fact that the the courts have been under this you know hot sun for the last week and that this the courts have gotten a little quicker and i think it helps pliskova a little bit wouldn't it be just typical Simona Halep to win, beat Svitolina, beat Pliskova, and lose in the final to Ostapenko or Bashinsky? I just feel like that's the most logical based on how her career's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's it would be very it would very it would be very Halep like for her to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody left has a legitimate chance. I think Svitolina can can play. I think Halep we mentioned. Um, the other two are one match away from a final. And even Caroline Garcia, I think she she's, does just enough. Now she's going to get the de facto French support from the crowd. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and I think that the French, 
the French and and fans of drama were really hoping for the Mladenovic Garcia final. Yeah, it's interesting because looking at the draw, there's there's a unseeded, there's the 30 seed, there's the 28 seed, and then you know uh, there is Pliskova, Halep, and Svitolina. That's is two, three, and five. So it's it's as if the it's not as if the the top players all f- fell out of this draw and it's it's all randomness but it's it certainly feels that way you know yeah especially was, considering that Svitolina is the five seed in this <laughs> tournament yeah I mean let's just be honest any tournament that doesn't have Serena Williams in it is going to feel like a weaker field if you just look at it from the outside but yeah it it could have been a lot worse I, I think we're looking at the quarterfinals and we're still seeing you know Three really high quality players. Meldenovich, who I think is going to be in the top 10 shortly. Bishinsky has been there. Wozniacki has been, you know, there as well, former number one. So it wasn't a bad quarterfinal field. And I think it it could be, there could be some high drama down the stretch here too. But, uh, but no, before I let you go, I want to, before we get picks here at the end, I do want to get your uh, thoughts on a couple things. It wouldn't be a major tournament without some drama. And two incidents come to mind for me. First, I just want a, a quick take of yours on the Meldenovich Muguruza drama with the crowd. Mm-hmm. Do you think... Now, I, I didn't see this live in real time, so i got to be honest with my assessment there, but do you think that Muguruza had a point? Do you think the crowd was getting on her? Do you think Meldenovich was celebrating her airs too much? Or do you think this is uh, a player that should just learn how to handle a hostile environment a little better? Well, I was there. I wasn't watching the match, but I was on site during that during that match, and the crowd was incredibly raucous. It was very loud. You could hear, you know, you could hear any time Muguruza would, or any you could hear any time Mladenovic would 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 win points or would, you know, you you could hear it throughout the whole venue. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that Muguruza was overselling what what she was what she was saying, and I think that um, f- from what some of what I've heard, what what she claimed to have heard, I, I wouldn't put it past the fans there, just because they're so hungry for a French winner here that it's it's not beyond the realm of possibility that they would say the kinds of things that she claim that this that the French crowd said to her mm-hmm. and and Muguruza is a pretty sensitive player she's she's pretty sensitive to those things um, but I, I I also think that Mladenovic is a bit of a, a divisive player for whatever reason I mean she's 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 had her she's had issues with Garcia her countrywoman as well so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that any time you play a, a player on their home soil in front of their fans, you're you you can't be surprised. Right. They're they're partisan. <laughs> that's my whole that's my whole thing as well. I, I think part of it is just understanding the environment. And there's going to be fans that take it a little overboard, but that's you know being the visiting team, being a road team in sports. I, I think Meldenovich, like you said, she's a little divisive, and she can you know get the fans going and. And there's, there's the ethical questions of whether or not, but I, I just think it's a personal preference. Like, I don't mind it. I think it's, you know, good to see at times, uh, but, you know, I, I didn't think it was overly vicious, you know, and, and I do think Muguruza's sensitivity might have played a factor into that as well. But the other thing, the other thing that we got to discuss, and I, I remember reaching out to you when this happened, but... Uh, in the first round matchup between uh, Martin Cuisan and uh, Lacoli, the wild carter from France, where they didn't shake hands, and yeah. the uh, after the after the five set match. Now I am one hundred percent pro shaking hands at just about all costs, and I do think Lacoli probably should have just gritted his teeth and shook his hands and maybe said something. But my goodness, Cuisan needs a reality check and attitude adjustment. I, I just think that you want to talk about celebrating an opponent's mistakes too much. Look no further yeah. than that match. No, that that was that was pretty shameful, and and I'm not a big fan of Cleason because I do think that he. This is not the first time this guy has has done this, and and uh, no benefit you know, of the doubt. Yeah, it, it's he's proven that he that he's a type of player that's going to do whatever whatever he needs to do in terms of getting under a, his opponent's skin or. 
And I did look back at that match, and you know the the French player his, his name slips my mind at the moment, but he he actually himself celebrated at Clizan's double fault that gave him I think the second set or the third set. So it's not as if it's not mm-hmm. as if the kid was was totally without kind of blame as well. But you know Clizan's a top fifty player and he's got to be able to act like that I feel like against a guy that's ranked 150 <laughs> spots below him yeah a wild card just, player <laughs> a wild card player that's French you know and so he he's got to know again back to the the, the crowd thing he's got to know that the crowd's gonna be fully behind behind the Frenchman and anytime I see anytime I see a player act anytime I see a player celebrating another person's mistake it, it always bothers me but certain it, in certain instances it's sort of understandable mm-hmm. um, but and, but I do think at the end of the day that he should have been the better man and just shook his hand and I understand his frustration and if you heard his if you heard him in the post match press conference he did explain that he said you know that it's a question of respect and uh, he respected him as a player, and he said Klazan was a better player, and that he beat him, but that he doesn't, you know, respect the way that he did it, the way yeah. he carried himself. So, yeah, they had words after uh, that game happened, and I, sure. I, under, I understand. You know, you win a long, you win an important point on a player's there. It's a game. It's not just winning that point; it's winning the game. You might, you know, fist pump, be excited, but what Cuisan did, you know, pointing at his head, screaming into the fans' direction. I mean, yeah, everybody, every fan of sports knows that that was too much, and uh, you would, as you said, like to see him act like he's been there before. If he's got aspirations of getting better, he's going to have to learn how to win with some dignity. But all right, Brian Nelson, Money Mitch Effect. Before I let you go, predictions. Who do you think is going to win these uh, tournaments on the men's and women's side? Well, on the men's side, I, I just I can't. Uh, you can't really bet against Rafa on this surface. The way he's playing, it just doesn't. I, I don't think. Uh, okay. okay. I don't see any of these guys beating him. All right, but um, let me let me let me just say this though: if it is Rafa versus, who I think you think he's going to be playing Stan. If it's Rafa versus Stan, and I asked you that question the day of the final, I'm pretty confident you'd give me a different answer. Yeah, yeah. If Stan, <laughs> I, I, if Stan gets to the final, I can't, I can't, I can't go against him. But it's perfect in finals, majors. So. Yeah, he's yeah. That's but, all he does is win finals, you know. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think Rafa looks too tough right now. I mean, it's hard to go against. And on the women's side, I guess since I got to pick somebody, I'll, I'll go. I'll go with Halep. Yeah, I, I'm there too. I mean, I thought Meldenovich Halep would have been an interesting final, but I just, you know, it, this is it though. I'm, I'm putting the preface that I will never pick her in a major again if she loses this one. <laughs> you can, you can quote me on that. It will not happen. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I, I, I'm, I wouldn't have thought she'd made it this far. You know, she's been, she's been kind of pretty woeful for the last year and a half, so. Uh, it's good to see her playing, playing to the quality that she should be able to play to, and and I, I don't know. I think I think she's, I think she's got it in her to win this one. The women's draws getting a little better. Women's games getting a little better, I should say, with uh, Kvitova coming back. You know, playing. You know, she losing losing the second round, but just starting her recovery, uh, and then Azarenka is going to come back. We'll see Sharapova down the stretch, so that women's tour should be uh, a little better. Well. Brian Nelson, thanks for joining the show. Uh, lastly, any uh, fun experiences in your downtime in Paris other than watching uh, NBA Finals games and uh, caves of some sort? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, Paris is nice. It's a beautiful city. You should come visit Mitch. I know. Well, everybody says that, and I, and I can't tell if they're patronizing me or not. In all seriousness, yeah. Brian Nelson, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. And uh, have a have a safe rest of the tournament, safe travel back, get some sleep when you can, and uh, enjoy the tennis. Thanks, Mitch. You too. That's going to do it for today's show. Thanks again to Dan Mount and Brian Nelson for being our guests. 
big thanks to them for taking time to discuss their respective sports. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. You can find all the Money Mitch Effect episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. And you can follow me at Twitter, MoneyMitchM21. I didn't talk about the NBA Finals today because as far as I'm concerned, they haven't really started or, or they're not going to start. There's a big game three tonight. Will the Cavs bounce back and make this a series? Or are the Warriors going to really sweep their way through the entire playoffs? They've looked great so far. Just don't know what Cleveland can do to get back. But there's a game three. The venue switch. Anything can happen. And for casual NBA fans, we all hope that's the case. This is competitive. But we still got the French Open Finals coming up this weekend. The Stanley Cup is now a best of three. And baseball is racketing up as well. That's going to do it for today's show. I am Mitch Michaels. Thanks again for listening. And remember, please enjoy sports. This was the Money Mitch Effect.